since 1971. Giles Band doing the Southside Shuffle, y'all. Steve Miller Band, Jungle Love, Alice Cooper from the Coops LP. Alice Cooper goes to hell right here on Detroit's Best 101. WRIF, I'm Carl Coffey. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Well, you know, uh, I could Tina Turner got high, that's for sure. Okay, let's fade that out. We've got a lot of calls here. Numbers 354-WRIF. Interested in drugs, what part they play in your life, and what you think about them. We're going to take our first call. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. Now, I did see that uh, VH1 named uh, Led Zeppelin the number one hard rock band. Do you get a little tired of the number ones constantly for Led Zeppelin, or do you still enjoy it? Yeah, and, uh, well, mostly proud of the fact that um, there wasn't a great deal of planning behind anything. We weren't monitoring it or knowing what's going on. It was just, just, it had its own legs, which was great. If it rocks, it's on the riff in the early part of the 21st century. Hey, back in studio right here with the guys from uh, Corn. We've got Monkey, Jonathan, and Fieldy are in. And uh, I just heard the Beavis and Butthead commercial. It reminded me when you guys were on South Park. I Ooh. think we all had a blast. Oh, my God. It was so much fun. And then they lost all of our vocals or something. All <laughs> of our, like, voice overdubs. Yeah. Yeah, we did, and I we had to do it all over again. So we had to do it twice. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast, with former program directors Fred Jacobs and Tom Bender. Welcome to the podcast, the history of WRIF. My name is Mike Staff. Had the pleasure of being a DJ on the Riff for 14 years, from 1992 to 2006. And in this podcast, we're taking a look and having conversations with the people and the personalities that made the Riff well, the riff. And today, uh, we have a couple of gentlemen who, um, well, I, I guess you could say there's, there's a lot of fingerprints all over WRIF throughout the years. And I think maybe with the exception of Arthur P., there's only two men on the planet whose DNA is literally a part of this radio station. Tom Bender and Fred Jacobs. Thank you guys. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Now, I realize that uh, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with you guys, but people inside of this building who's ever worked at WRIF or people in the radio industry obviously know who you are. Um, and while Riff listeners are very familiar with the DJs, who are really the face and the kind of the voice and the personality of the radio station, there are a lot of people behind the scenes that really make this thing work. So, Tom, you retired in 2016 after an amazing 47 years year Detroit radio career with 35 of them directly associated with the ref. Right? Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, now I do feel old. And, um, yeah, I started uh, my my first association with with riff was not even riff. It was WXYZ FM. Wow. And so that would have been 1969, 1970. Mm, crazy. And there was a hiatus period in there. Um, and Fred was gracious enough to take over <laughs> and make make all all things right. Yeah, you've been uh, you're on the air on WRIF. You did overnights in the early seventies. You're right. a program director or PD as we refer to in the in the industry and general manager as well. Correct of WRIF. Now, Fred, you're still going strong. You got over forty years of radio experience. I think about thirty five of those are directly associated with Riff in some way, shape, or form, right? Well, a, a number of years ago, Tom and I were actually at a Riff focus group that I was doing, and I think it was in between our two groups. And Tom was having a smoke on the back porch, and I was hanging out with him to talk about Group One, and we were just remarking about what an, what an amazing group it was. And Tom said, well, you realize WRIF is our life's work. And, and I thought, wow, what a sobering thought that is. But it's kind of true. So, yeah, I'm still involved with the radio station, even though I have not technically drawn a paycheck from them in, in an employee way mm. since 1983. So I, I think for just our listeners, so we can put things in perspective, let's just talk about the organizational structure of a radio station just for a moment. You've both served as program directors, or like we said, PD of Riff. Um, and um, Fred, you were PD from Riff from 1981 to 1983. Tom, you were program director from 1976 to 1981. Right. Fred, can you just explain to our listeners what a program director does at a radio station? Well, today, program directors actually have a much more complicated job than Tom and I did. I mean, today you have to be in charge of all the content that mm. comes out of this place, whether it's the website or social media or whatever. Back then, Tom and I didn't realize that we had a much easier job. We were responsible for pretty much anything that came out the speakers. So the music, 
the air personalities, the events. I mean, we, we were blessed in those days to have a really good staff, not just good people, but lots of them doing a lot of these various things. But yeah, the buck stopped at the program director's office. The ratings came out all the time. And uh, if they were good, uh, you got a little credit for it. And if they weren't good, you got a lot of credit for it. Yeah, so, a lot of the blame. Yeah, but it basically just responsible for the look, the feel, and the sound of the radio station. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And the program director will then report to the general manager or the GM. Tom, you were right. GM. Why don't you explain to our listeners a little bit about all the responsibilities of a general manager at a radio station? Well, there's, you know, as we've set up, there's the program director being in charge of the sound and the on-air personality of the radio station. But there's a whole lot more going into it as a business. Um, the advertising has to be sold in order to uh, to produce the revenue stream. There's an accounting department. There's um, a very complicated process called traffic which is not beep, beep, stop sign traffic. It's getting your commercial on the air the way you, the advertiser, wanted to uh, wanted it to run and making sure that all of those slots are filled correctly. So that's an ongoing puzzle. Um, and then there's the corporate or uh, overall resp- uh, responsibility of telling telling the company this is where we're at this is where we're going here's how we're going to get there so general manager usually uh is the one who with the program director and the sales manager is essentially the three-part brain trust that determines what the station needs in the next year call it Mm -hmm. and how we're going to do that and Specifically, the GM has to determine how much money we're going to allocate to that. Um, so they're, they're broad overview things. And underneath that, you um, you had people who were um, much more qualified when it came to accounting or selling to be able to execute those broad visions. Fred, um, you started your own radio consultancy back in the early 80s. Um, and you've grown in one of the most successful consultants in the in the world or in the country, at least. Can you explain to our listeners what a radio consultant does and the role that you have within a radio station? Well, there's a lot of people out there who basically think we don't do anything at all. <laughs> Consulting is the easiest gig in the world, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we're we're dotted line connected with the radio stations in which we work. I mean, for the most part. Uh, a consultant helps the program director on the programming side. Our consultancy is expanded onto the sales side mm. as well. My brother Paul, who actually sold for Riff, so that was fun. The three of us actually were all working there at the same time, which was pretty exciting. But uh, we also help stations generate revenue uh, as well. But yeah, we're really a, a support mechanism more than anything else. We hear radio from all over the country and sometimes when you're the program director or the gm of a radio station you get into that little market bubble Mm. where all you know about is what's going on in detroit and so part of what a consultant does is is to say hey i'm hearing something very interesting in la that might work here yeah and we actually ended up doing a lot of that together uh abc which owned the station when tom and i worked there the first time uh, eventually moved me to New York to work with the other uh, six uh, owned and operated stations. And so it was a great vantage point. I could see what was going on in L.A. and New York and Chicago and San Francisco and D.C. and whatnot. And, and part of the game was to move the ideas around mm-hmm. or come up with an idea from somewhere else and adapt it for Riff. So we did a lot of that. That is really cool. Let me Let me jump in for a second and just say... Uh, certainly in prior years and even today, one of the hazards of being a program director is you fall in love with your own work. Mm. And you may not be the first person to recognize that the market around you and your competitors have responded in a certain way. And you need some objectivity that doesn't have an agenda with you. Mm 
to be able to look at it and go, okay, let's consider what this means for us. The only research that you really had as PD Mm. was the, the ratings, and that would tell you how many and when. But it would not answer the why questions. Why are they still there? Why did they go away? Mm. Why are they older than I expected? Why are they younger than I expected? And that's when uh, Fred was working for a research firm out in Cornfield, Iowa. Uh, (laughs) Technically, Marion, Iowa, but yes, it was Cornfield, Iowa. (laughs) And um, when when I made the call, I didn't even know that he was from Detroit or had any a relationship with the with the city or anything like that and um the first the first time that they produced a study of the riff audience and that was the first of many more i can guarantee you Mm -hmm. um it answered so many questions and allowed you to be more precise and more sure of your decisions that it made all the difference in the world. Yeah, what we're really talking about is knowing your audience, knowing what they like, what they don't like, why they're listening, why they're not listening to somebody and else. And not just your version of it. Mm-hmm. You know, because right. there's always hallway fights about, oh, they loved Leonard Skinner. Give me a break. <laughs> well, you you were the first person, Tom, that actually referred to research as being radar. Mm-hmm. And, and I always thought that was just a tremendous analogy because you become – a much better pilot when you can actually see what's going on out there. And, and when you, back in the 70s, there really wasn't a whole lot of information to be had. There there was really no research. Arbitron, the ratings company, was it. But it was so limited and so deceiving that it, it was really hard to really know what to do. And so research, as Tom called it, became a gut adjuster. Mm, and so, you know, you, you think you have certain assumptions about the audience and the music and, and the jocks and all that stuff. And then you get some research back and it, it puts it in a, a completely different perspective and frankly makes you a lot smarter. When I think back on Riff, the first big heyday of Riff kind of began after you guys had that research and you started bring, you brought JJ in the morning crew over in the morning and then, right? Okay, and, well, there's time in between that. There is. Yes. Okay. The the research was the research was presented um, very very competently, I would add. <laughs> um, and um, we started an internal discussion uh, between myself and the general manager as to what to do with it, because one of the things that it did point out is that for the core audience, we might have been too top 40 mm. in certain day parts. So that allowed uh, that allowed us to begin to experiment with moving a little bit deeper. Um, the powers that be at ABC didn't exactly think that that was the brightest move in the world. So I had to call my research friend to back me up on mm. that. And one thing led to another. And because of a very kind and smart general manager – we were able to recruit Fred to come back to um, the Motor City and be the research director for the station. Mm, which was rare for a radio station. It, it didn't was, exist. It I mean, vir- exist. Virtually yeah. unheard of. Yeah, I mean, it was virtually unheard of to a point where ABC did not even have research director as an existing title in the entire company. And in, it's kind of a weird story, but it, it took them months to be able to actually create the title and get me the right business cards. Did so. they try to get you to sell just to help justify the expense? Well, no, they didn't try to get me to sell. They actually <laughs> oh, made they me sell, which, yep. which, which, which turned out to be a very important experience for me. It, it, it taught me that mm. I did not enjoy that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I did take on respect for the people who actually are out there uh, doing that for a living. So it turned out to be very helpful. At the time, uh, I was at Tom's door every day just just asking him, when is this going to end? <laughs> I, I, I was hired to do research here, and here I am running around calling on Highland Appliance yeah. and stuff. But it, it, it was only probably for six, eight months. It seemed a lot longer than that. 
But it, it turned out to be a good experience, and I actually got to see the world from the sales department. Mm. That, was, that was the beauty of Riff in those days, is that if you had curiosity uh, about anything inside the radio station, you could hang out, figure it out, and, mm. and go from there. So, yeah, that was, that was one of the good parts. And so, yes, sold. I sold. Coming up. God bless Arthur. He was the one that uh, came up with the home of rock and roll. Mm. And as he was imitating Seeger coming out of one of the records, and it just stuck. Um, and at the time, it was Detroit's best rock, and that's what ABC was using. It was the it was the ABC packaging, and we broke that. Yeah. So we broke that to become much more local, to become much more rock, to become more adventurous musically and adventurous promotionally. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Southfield Zoo on location. You want to get this? We got to talk into the mic. How many years has it been? Nine years now? Oh, no. (laughs) Happy. On behalf of the uh, staff and management of WRIF. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast. We uh, would like to present to you Kim. Hi, Kim. How are you? Let me close the window. Thank you very much. Now, would you like to... uh, <laughs> would you would you describe the scene? Would you describe the, the scene, scene is, in the uh, control room here? Ron Sweat from the Virgo Lounge is in the other room, <laughs> along with a bunch of other weirdos. And he is hello, Kim. How are you? Doing? <laughs> with Mike Staff and our special guests, former program directors Fred Jacobs and Tom Bender. But let's get back to that that first research because we're leading into like the first riff big heyday when things just took off. With this all-star lineup of J.J. and the morning crew, then Ken Calvert in middays, Arthur in the afternoons, and Karen Savelli at night. So can you, get, can you talk about piecing that together? <laughs> yeah, Tom, talk about that. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, well, w, J.J. and uh, his crew, George Beyer, um, were over at W4, and to a great degree for the very first time in rock radio a morning show was making waves mm. and up till then for for rock stations you sort of considered building from afternoon and nights interesting and then backfill into days and mornings but the mornings wasn't important it, at the time it really wasn't because you also had the the ingrained habits of the AM dial with JP and Purton mm. And you had to decide where you were going to uh, compete. Mm-hmm. Well, plus we had, I mean, back then, and teenagers were a big, big part of the audience. And Morning Drive Probably was... I 25%. Mean, they, yeah, they weren't commuting to work right. like, like adults do. So Morning, yeah, Tom's exactly right. I mean, Arthur was in the best shift of the station. Mm-hmm. Afternoons ruled mm. on rock stations until Steve Dahl and then ultimately J.J. And, and George came around. And that really changed the game here in Detroit Radio. Yeah, we we put together a plan to hire uh, Johnson and Byer away from W4. Ken Calvert at the time was promoting records for Columbia, but I remembered Ken from the old days at ABX and always enjoyed his his sense of humor and his outlook on life. Mm-hmm. So we knew we wanted to, to go after him. And what we needed to do at that point was to reposition the radio station and give it more of an edge, give it more of a of a, a guy sound, a contemporary sound. Um God bless Arthur. He was the one that uh, came up with the home of rock and roll. Mm. And as he was imitating Seeger coming out of one of the records, and it just stuck. Um, and at the time, it was Detroit's best rock, and that's what ABC was using. It was the it was the ABC packaging, and we broke that. Yeah. So we broke that to become much more local, to become much more rock, to become more adventurous musically and adventurous promotionally so we wrapped all of these things together and 
did them all at once mm. in order to maximize the impact. The last piece of the puzzle that dropped was the TV commercial that we had cut that was called the Lips Commercial or Remarkable Mouth. And that was Jay Hoker's biggest contribution to the whole thing. And Jay Hoker as was GM. the GM. He was the GM. And the crazy part was uh, the Loop in Chicago had had run the same commercial, but we wanted to do the Detroit version of it. And Jay was actually uh, probably the best qualified to do the casting mm. of uh, of the uh, pretty woman who would do the uh, lip sync. And uh, Jay picked out this woman uh, who it turned out serendipitously was Kelly Harmon who uh, had been married to John DeLorean and mm. and had a Detroit history. She was Tom Harmon's daughter and Mark Harmon's sister. And so we didn't even know at the time. She just looked very attractive and could lip sync. And so we thought, <laughs> hey, this is great. But then it turned out Kelly had a Detroit connection, and that made it even more mm. newsworthy and buzzworthy. And I'll let Tom tell you about the spot, but, I mean, it it just blew beyond the rock uh, boundary lines. Everybody in town was talking about that commercial. Mm-hmm. I remember when my mother asked me, uh, what, what <laughs> would, you know, is that your station? It's like, yeah, it is. So it, 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 I don't know that I've ever been involved with the TV campaign that was more buzzworthy. That resonated as much? Yeah. I can't think of one. No. It was, well, it was the timing of it, and ABC owned Riff, so it's nice to have a, a, a company that owns a TV station, <laughs> right? Like, that didn't hurt. Well, it, it wasn't so much the company, it was Jay. Okay. Um, yeah. Because what Jay did was he had his budget, and it was uh, it was significant, um, because he he knew that we had to had to make this work. And he walked over to the guys at Channel 7 and said, I've got this much money to spend, but I want you to run the spot in the open slots that you may have. And just by doing that and being, uh, you know, present to the general manager and knowing uh, the GM of the TV station, he doubled the exposure Mm. of the damn spot. So it rained television spots with Kelly Harmon. It did. And you could really feel that momentum. You could feel it everywhere. Well, and, and Jay gave us the, the budget to be able to do posters yeah. and, and billboards and all of that. So, I mean, it wasn't just on TV. It was a multimedia campaign. I mean, those posters were in every gas station mm-hmm. in, in town for a while and probably in a lot of uh, bedrooms, too. So <laughs> That's it, true. It, it, it was huge. The TV commercial was just a 10 on the 10 scale. Um, Everybody liked it. I never ran into anybody Mm. that said anything even neutral about the spot. Well, no. And and the other part of it is, is that even though Art was already doing the baby thing on the air, the fact that that was the exclamation point of the commercial – Mm. almost was like a secret handshake for the mm. market. You you would say to people, uh, you work for WRIF, and they'd go, baby! <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry, Art, I, I can't do it quite like you. And Nobody I think, can. I, I think I just hurt my <laughs> you voice. You hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah, I think I just hurt myself. But, but yeah, I mean, baby became, I mean, we call them today audio signatures. That's the mm. crazy part is that the modern-day term for what Art created uh, is a sonic signature or an audio signature, but it really worked. And that was part of the commercial as well. Just that weird incongruous thing of Kelly Harmon uh, pulling off an, an Arthur Penhallow voice baby was really powerful. And then somebody came up with the idea during the focus groups of showing the the participants a, a um, oval with nothing in it Mm, the over uh, bumper sticker yeah it became probably the best uh street merchandising for a radio station that i've ever experienced yeah it was really cool um it it i had actually seen it in la we had we had tested it out there 
And uh, it was unbelievable. I did focus groups out there. I held up the shape of the KLOS sticker, mm. and everybody knew what it was. And I ran back home and said to Tom, you know what, we, we should check this out here. It, it would probably work. And we did, and it did. And, uh, I mean, but imagine basically saying to the company, we want to make bumper stickers without the call letters or the 101. <laughs> right, that was just right. crazy suicide. Right. We just want a bumper sticker that says baby, or we want a bump st- bumper sticker that says Bob Seeger mm. or the Rolling Stones. And don't worry, people will understand that it's us. And so, yeah, that, that also became sort of part of that cool code of, of riff. If you were a riff fan, and, and it, it's... People define themselves as as people by what radio station mm-hmm. was your favorite. I mean that that may seem ancient, ancient yeah. by <laughs> right. today's standards. But if you were a Riff fan, you were a different person than a W four fan or an ABX fan or mm-hmm. a CKLW fan. I mean, it very much that was your tribe. It was very much a tribal thing, and it spoke to the kind of person you were, mm-hmm. and you wanted to display that identity on on your car. And that's why there were just thousands of bumper stickers, but not just for Riff. I mean, I think we clearly yeah. led the league, but uh, Wheels did a good job, and ABX and W4 were out there. I mean, back in the day, DRQ, IQ in my car, mm. was the big sticker for them. So bumper stickers were very much a way of connecting your radio identity back then and so it was really important for us and we sponsored the backs of the bumper stickers we had a long-running thing going with harmony house Mm -hmm. which was the big local record store at the time and uh, yeah that back of the bumper sticker could be used to save a buck off any album in the place and back when albums only cost three four bucks that was a really deep discount so we worked it really hard but no other radio station especially at the time would Put band names on a bumper sticker without their call letters. Has anyone even ever done that? Prior to us doing it? No. 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 And I I recall um, having a rather intense discussion with the general manager about how many to print. Mm. And so we started with a very, you know, it was probably 25,000 or something like that. And they started walking out the door in a matter of, of hours and days. Incredible. And then it was a matter of how many to reprint, which became an ongoing thing. Like every two weeks we were reprinting something else or a band was coming to town and we had to get that going. And the bumper sticker project just became constant. It was it, like an it industry, was, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean... It was the promotion department yeah. for a long time. Yeah, we, we had moved into the new building, thank goodness. I mean, we had been in the trailers, which was just... That's another podcast. Another <laughs> podcast. But it was pretty prehistoric, and then we went from the worst to the best, and they moved us into this incredible building, and there was a room there that kind of became intern central. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty big room, and Back then, people would send us self-addressed stamped envelopes in order to get a baby bumper sticker or a riff sticker or a Billy Squire sticker or whatever they wanted. And we had a whole team of interns back there, eight hours a day, just stuffing Mm, envelopes and and mailing them out to people. Because aside from appearances or people actually showing up at the station, it was really the U.S. mail that got those bumper stickers out. Incredible. Yeah. Coming up. And Jimmy and George decided that they were going to rally the Rockers. And they were going to do it both on the air and off the air if, you know, if if it took hold. And sort of backed us into having to print dread cards. Yeah, they were they were kind of paper cardboard cards at the beginning. But they came up with everything. They came yeah. up with the artwork and and uh, the acronym and and all that stuff. And then Dread Cards started flying out the door as well by the thousands. I mean, you had to have a Rift Dread Card. Well, what was interesting is that you had to sign your name on it. So it was like you're declaring you know, your exactly. allegiance you're to rock. 101 minutes of non-stop Rift Rock. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. Party with the Riff all weekend long because it's Big Daddy's Foreplay Weekend on 101 WRIF. Riff rocks, baby. 
with Mike Staff and our special guest, former program directors Fred Jacobs and Tom Bender. Talk about the Dread Card, because that was about the same era. Yep. Detroit Rockers engaged in the abolition of disco. That was probably the next big thing. Promotional <laughs> event. Yeah. Uh, w4 uh no wait yes w4 had steve on steve doll in the morning right yes uh, he, so steve was johnson's successor at w4 and there was a bit of a uh, there was a bit of a uh thing <laughs> competitive uh atmosphere between the two shows shall we say and um jimmy and george this was right about the time of BG's Saturday Night Fever, all the rest of that disco thing. And Jimmy and George decided that they were going to rally the rockers. And they were going to do it both on the air and off the air if you know if if it took hold. And they did some some very funny bits and some very funny songs. And they then talked about uh, creating a club and sort of backed us into having to print dread cards. Yeah, they were they were kind of paper cardboard cards at the beginning, but they came up with everything. They came yeah. up with the artwork and and uh, the acronym and and all that stuff. And then dread cards started flying out the door as well by the thousands. I mean, you had to have. A rift dread card. Well, what was interesting is that you had to sign your name on it, so it's like you're declaring, you know, exactly. your allegiance you're, to rock. Exactly, and uh, and disco being this superficial leisure suit disco ball <laughs> kind of ooh that that <laughs> right. kind of thing. So yeah, no, it was very much a lifestyle kind of statement of yeah, committing to rock. And then I don't I don't remember exactly when we flipped them into plastic cards or into actually credit cards that were numbered because the original ones i don't believe were i don't no. think the paper mm-hmm. ones weren't numbered but well they were they all had the same well, they number. were just stupid just right fake. yeah they weren't exactly but the uh the actual uh riff credit cards dread cards uh became a thing and uh we we actually turned them into a sales vehicle uh as well you could flash your riff uh gold card i think as they were called at businesses all over town, and the salespeople were running around coming up with all kinds of discounts, some of which were actually good and some were, of course, lame. But, but it, was, it turned out to be a thing. I'm trying to remember, and I can't put it together. Huh. Didn't J.J. and the Bruiser go down and confront W4 as part of a yeah, bit? So, so what happened, it was really weird. I was programming at, at, at that time, and uh, the morning show actually was on Saturdays as well. Back, back then, DJs did six days, and including art. Art, art worked on Saturday afternoon, uh, but uh, Jimmy and George did Saturday morning, and I got a call at home early on a Saturday morning that apparently W4 was on the air, uh, promoting the um, uh, bring a Rift T-shirt to W four, and we'll mm. give you a W four T-shirt in exchange. So we're caucusing on the phone. What do we do? We're getting all these calls, whatever. And so we worked it out, and they arranged a caravan, and they invited <laughs> people to, to come over to the radio station on Ten Mile in the Lodge. And when they got off the air. This huge caravan of people drove down to W4 all the way on Jefferson Avenue. And uh, there were hundreds of them, and they literally stormed the old W4 house and uh, wiped them out of uh, T-shirts and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, it was, it was a weird street symbolic moment, but in a weird way, I don't think W4 ever really recovered. Mm. You know, they got Howard Stern... Uh, a little bit later on, and and while Howard had minimal impact here, W four I think at that point was already on its heels. But yeah, I I kind of track it to that weird Saturday morning caravan that JJ and George uh, uh, engineered and put together. It was quite a scene, and that's so interesting because that just happened kind of impulsively. It happened like you couldn't create something no. like that. Those are the best promotions, <laughs> yeah. though. I mean, you know, the the ones you plan. And then the ones that you kind of seize the moment. And Rift became 
uh, you know, certainly uh, in in Tom's era, and I was inspired by all of that. And you you just look for those organic moments, and you jump on them. Mm-hmm. And it takes a certain amount of courage to do that because maybe maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Right. But after a while, you you begin to know the station, and you begin to know the audience, mm-hmm. and you begin to know the personalities, and you can kind of begin to figure out, okay, we we could do this. Th- this would work. Detroit Rock Radio has um, always been very competitive. Uh, well, is is that unique to Detroit? Uh, yes and no, but I mean, certainly other major markets had two or three album rock stations competing at varying times when the rock segment of the market was as big as it was. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, probably it was it was 60, 70% of males were listening to some form of rock. Mm. Um, and this is 70s and early 80s. Um, and it fought back against uh, the disco invasion. When S- Steve Dahl was over in Chicago, he had his disco demolition. Mm. Um JJ and the Morning Crew continued to pound that that same message, um, and yeah, it was it was always competitive for the audience's ears, not necessarily to try to you know put down uh, another given radio station. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of it too is that. Yeah, the rock radio segment was always hyper-competitive because it was good. Mm. I mean, this is the kind of market that responds to radio. I mean, not, uh, now, now that I've probably worked <laughs> in 100 different markets, I mean, you see the ones that are, are really radio-centric, and you see the ones where radio matters, but mm. maybe not that much. And Detroit was always a market, and I think part of the reason why, we always had tremendously great personalities and big radio stations in this town from jp to dick Purton to steve Dahl. i mean the fact that even howard was here is is very indicative of that detroit radio footprint so i i think people have gotten used to having great radio come out of detroit and so when these little wars and skirmishes took place mm. people engaged right. it was really kind of a a thing you defended your favorite radio station well, and I got to give credit to the newspapers too, because they covered radio competition. Right. I mean, back then, Jim McFarlane was the uh, Detroit News uh, radio reporter, and Gary Graff was the Detroit Free Press reporter, and John Smintek was in there. I mean, there were, there were actually a whole bunch of them. Radio was yeah. a beat. Yeah. Radio yeah. was actually a beat at the newspapers. And so when you, Bob Talbert, I mean, when Bob Talbert talked about you in his column in the Free Press, it was major stuff. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had a promotion director every morning. There would be a packet of Xeroxed articles on everybody's desks with what the news said, what the free press said, what the Oakland press said. I mean, it was really a big deal. You're right, Tom. I mean, the the newspapers unknowingly helped us. And that didn't happen in um, many other markets. Mm. Um, oh, you know, the New York Times writing about local radio? Right. Forget about it. Yeah, right. You know, there were there were just that many more tiers of entertainment stars. Um, but in Detroit, you could matter as a personality. Well, because the personalities on rock radio, at least, well, they were stars to mm-hmm. people here. They were celebrities. And, and uh, Dick Kernan once referred to Detroit as being a very incestual radio market in which DJs would go from one radio station to another. So if you look at, like, well, even that first all-star lineup – uh, JJ was at W4. Right. Uh, Calvert was at both ABX and W4. Arthur was always here. And Karen Savalli was at ABX. So talk a little bit about how we share radio stations kind of shared those personalities throughout the years. Because then JJ went to Wheels. Well, Calvert went to Wheels, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's, it's more a reflection of the underlying economics which station was on the attack, which station needed a good anchor personality to succeed. That still happens today. Mm. That much like any good ball player, when somebody's option comes up, 
um, you have to look at and say, okay, what do they bring to my team and what's their inherent value for doing that? And yeah, we, I mean, probably in some ways we started that with that whole late 70s raid uh, that included Calvert and Savelli and Johnson um, and Bayer. But everything since then has been economically driven mm. by new entries into the market and wanting to, you know, wanting to make a splash and uh, your inherent difficulty of running a sustaining business and not paying so much that you're economically out of whack with the rest of your business. So we talk about that, um, that what I call the first heyday, the first of many heydays for Riff. And, um, you know, you have these great personalities. You tighten the music. You do research to see exactly what listeners want and don't want. You have great advertising behind it. You have promotions, um, you know, with the, the stickers and the goal card. But then Maui time pops up someplace. Talk about Maui time. Do you remember the first Maui time? Tom, were you... I don't think that was you. I, I think it may have even come after me. It, I, okay. I I can't remember. Uh, I, I think yeah. it, I think it was in the eighties where where that kicked in. I mean, maybe I was around for that. You know, it's sort of a blur. Yeah, Arthur couldn't even remember. No, I yeah. know it was just kind of one of those things. But yeah, doing a contest around him and 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 it became it became a sustaining promotion obviously and and riff I think has been famous for those over the years like rock girls and. And, uh, yep, Sin and, City. and Sin City and the Maui time thing. But yeah, it was it was really cool. I mean, one of the things for Riff was to always think big. And and for most of Riff's eras, if you want to put them that way, the bigger the station acted and and thought and frankly spent, uh, the better things were. And Maui Maui time was very much in that zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coming up. Well, it's pretty fascinating, and if you look at the Riff history, you got the two guys that really built this this mammoth in Riff back in the 70s, and then coming back and building Riff's biggest competitor at that time at WCSX, and then Riff and CSX becoming sister stations. I had a whole year of explaining to people why Riff needed to die. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> The History of WRIF. The podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. What are you, crazy? How do you remember? It was about three years ago. How do I remember when I was there, as a matter of fact? Uh, I think that trip Four was a blur. Four? Mm-hmm. That long ago? Mm-hmm. I haven't I remember. been that long do you? I was sitting on the beach. A lot of people sitting around me. And uh, and I was screwing up. And, and you were screwing up royally back here. And I was just trying I to get was, it together. That's I all. was not. I made one little mistake and you blew your top at me. No, I said, cool it. Uh, get no, it together. Like You're making us look silly back here in Hawaii. Well, you already look silly sitting out there on the beach yard. So. No, I look pretty cool. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast. With Mike Staff and our special guests, former program directors Fred Jacobs and Tom Bender. And let's just back up a little bit because I think it's such an interesting part of this story because you guys, um, uh, Tom, you had left in the early 80s. Fred, you you did your own thing. And then you guys were kind of came back together at CSX. Tom, you came in as a GM and CSX launched. And Fred, you're kind of widely known as like the kind of the the architecture of classic rock radio so you had a lot of input on that right well actually uh i was the dual architect because tom was the other one when when tom left detroit um he eventually ended up in dallas and was stuck with an am radio station that wasn't doing very well and in the meantime i was programming riff and started seeing in the research some really weird things going on our younger audience were uh, very much into the newer rock that was coming out at the time, like ACDC and Def Leppard, and maybe not all that crazy about the older stuff we were playing, like the Beatles and the Stones. And then the older audience wasn't as wild about the new music and Mm. wanted the station to play more cream 
and the, the doors and the who and all that stuff. And that's when Tom and I started having these late night conversations about what if there was a format that basically just played the Beatles all the way to the cars. Uh, and we didn't know what to do after that. But that, <laughs> no, that, we were just skywriting. We were just playing around and literally going through each other's record collections and stuff. And and Tom ran into this mess in Dallas where he needed to do something with this radio station. And so we flipped this mm. news AM station to classic rock. And in spite of being on the AM dial, it worked. You you talk about K rocks? Sure, that was. Um, <laughs> Nineteen eighty three, eighty four. Okay, say. thank yeah. you. We'll take that. Um, K Rocks was a, sort of a desperation move. <laughs> um, it, the station was losing enough money that it needed to cauterize the wound. So, for business purposes, rather than any sort of market analysis, which is kind of an unusual way to do it but sometimes you just have to do what you got to do and um, in Dallas at that time there were two album rock stations and a very traditional oldie station like doo and mm. and 50s um, and we decided what the heck let's take a shot at this and take the next slice of musical history and turn it loose and see what we get so um i asked fred to come down and we spent a weekend literally going through my record collection (laughs) and coming up with stuff that we thought was viable that maybe was fm material never played on am but you know it was a new day you just wanted to see if there was a big enough playlist right you, yeah, that was not a problem okay. no, uh, it, no if anything uh, we probably went a little too far but it it had impact and it actually started hurting the sister station in the building which was the album rock station oh. and they were very much into new music it was when mtv was exploding yeah. and it was all about new rock and mm-hmm. and all that and here we were playing cream and the doors and zeppelin and all that stuff, which had kind of begun to disappear from this other radio station. And, I mean, I, I, I remember the night Tom called me. They did some focus groups down there. I didn't do them. And uh, they did some focus groups down there for this FM rock station. And it was terrifying how this AM, you know, this AM station playing all this old stuff was showing up mm. in the room and showing up in the ratings. And so... We knew we had something, but we also knew we had to get it on FM. Yeah. And, and I, I was in that position as a fledgling consultant, and uh, I went out there and pounded the pavement for a couple of years, and it didn't work. I mean, I, I didn't have any cred in the industry at all. I mean, nobody really knew who I was, and so I couldn't sell it. I got it on a couple of AM stations mm. where it did okay. Uh, and then I lucked out, and there was a desperate guy in Lansing, and uh, uh, he was screwed. He had a bad signal and all kinds of other problems. And we flipped it on there in 85, and it just blew up. No. And then from there, it, 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 it went crazy. And then Tom... Uh, you, did, you did Lansing. You did... Kansas City. Kansas City. You did Greater Media LA. LA. And that, by that time, my life had brought me back to Detroit. And I inherited an adult contemporary station with a 1.7. Mm. And 1.7 share is not very good, sir. And that know. was the <laughs> distant, <laughs> distant third of three AC stations. Yeah. So if it worked once, you'd try it again. Sure. Picked up the phone and said, we got to talk. Well, it's pretty fascinating. And if you look at the Riff history, you got the two guys that really built this this mammoth in Riff back in the 70s. And then coming back and building Riff's biggest competitor at that time at WCSX. And then Riff and CSX becoming sister stations. I had a whole year of explaining to people why Riff needed to die. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it was a little ironic. It was a little crazy. I mean, it, it, I think it was really a, a growing experience for both of us to mm-hmm. to now have a heat-seeking missile on 
a station that we had really helped to build, yeah. and, and here we were uh, really messing with it in a, in a very profound way. So when it turned out that, that greater media – uh, could actually buy the radio station. I mean, we were so happy. I mean, it was really, it was, cool. it was really a <laughs> cool thing to to all of a sudden have Riff in in this building again. And and the crazy part was Riff was ready to explode. Mm-hmm. They just didn't know it. And and they sold Greater Media the station for a song. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a small amount of money, even by today's standards. And. Um, Tom knew what he was doing, and we did a little research and found out this uh, Drew and Mike show was a lot better than they thought it was. But at the time, it was Drew and Zip. Um, no, Mike no. had already been in. Mike oh, was Zip in. Was yeah, gone Mike already? had been in, and they were kind of fledgling, and they were doing character voices, and they were playing music, and they weren't taking phone calls. For some reason, somebody in their company had deemed that phones were not good. Mm-hmm. And I remember we did some focus groups. That's what they they were just getting getting acclimated themselves and trying to find their voice. Yeah, um, but those focus groups were amazing. I mean, we we saw some passion for them that we really didn't realize were there, and people were regurgitating some of their better bits. Mm. The you know the Bob Boners and all that stuff and all traffic exactly <laughs> and so we we looked at ourselves and thought wow maybe the key here is to get rid of the music mm. and let them take phones and really just leave them the hell alone and, and fred knew from other markets that that was working yeah and um you brought doug podell in to be the program director and mm-hmm. fred you had some experience with doug Tom, did you know doug um <laughs> prior yeah yeah, he was my sworn enemy. Right. I mean, <laughs> no, how weird is that? I hated him. Yeah, same here. I, You know, I competed head-to-head <laughs> with him at wheels, and it was just awful. And, uh, no, we were absolutely uh, sworn enemies, but I had an opening in Cleveland uh, for a classic rock station there, and I thought, you know what? We were trying to take down WMMS, which was just a Mammoth monster radio. radio station, and I thought, you know what? I need a street guy. I need a program director who is just a balls-out, aggressive street guy who will just run into walls for the radio station, and Podell came to mind. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> That's and, a good way and, to describe And him. he was miserable. I mean, he was really unhappy, and so he took the Cleveland job in a heartbeat and did a great job. Mm-hmm. We eventually put Howard Stern on that radio station, and Doug learned to become a really smart program director, and so it became pretty obvious that... Uh, bringing in somebody like that. And then Heidi, I think, was the other uh, piece of the pie. Uh, Heidi, Heidi Raphael, Raphael, yeah, who became the promotion director of the station. I mean, the best promotion director I've ever yeah. had the occasion to work with. Yeah, she's amazing. Yes. We had a great staff here in the 90s. It was just incredible. So uh, talk about uh, bringing Doug in, though, Tom, because he's your sworn enemy, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> It, um, sure, but it took one dinner. Yeah, um, he saw his passion, you know, and and we both knew that we respected one another from what we had done, mm-hmm. and this was an opportunity to be on the same team. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was that was very straightforward, and it was Doug who not, uh, you know found Heidi from his Cleveland experience, mm-hmm. and the combination of Podell's passion. And Heidi's get it done strategy that nothing is impossible mm-hmm. meant that they were they were ready to go to war. My job was to just keep them from warring with CSS. Right, you don't war with your family. That's right. <laughs> no, and was that tough. was yeah. tense at the staff level. Well, because of the competitive nature of yeah. Doug and Heidi and everyone on Riff and CSX, and you're kind of vying for the same audience to a certain degree, right? You know, I mean, when you look audience. at the when you looked at it statistically, the overlap wasn't that great. Mm. Um, that people people sorted it out. They knew what they wanted, and they knew the difference between the two flavors. Um, but certainly in the cum in the cumulative audience, it was the same marketplace. But both stations had pretty clear identities, mm. and the next two years were working to further clarify. Each station's position um, as unique. 
Let's get back to the rise of uh, of Drew and Mike because it was such a phenomenon. Um, you know, I, I mean, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just know that the best management um, technique is don't manage. Mm. And <laughs> Fred had talked about that set of focus groups. And we sat down with them after that set of focus groups and just said, you don't have to play records anymore. And then one of them, I forget which one, said, um, or no, it was you. You said, can you do blue? And Drew broke out laughing going, yeah, I can do blue. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and Mike, it was a given. the line was the hardest part of that show. Well, there was that, yeah. But we, we had a nice run. I mean, you know, when the when the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake mm. thing happened, it was it was tough for Drew and Mike and, and a lot of shows like that because all of a sudden – these massive fines were coming out of the FCC, <laughs> but really up to that point, uh, we just turned them loose, and 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 they did they did some really disgusting stuff, and it was great. I mean, it it, it, it was great. I, but you know what? It was always a smart show. I I will never forget uh, when Barry Sanders uh, all of a sudden on that Sunday night before the beginning of that football season mm. decides to take a powder and walk from the Lions. So it was like one of those crazy things, really pre-internet to a great degree. Mm. And I remember that Drew and Mike show the next day, and it was one of the most amazing things I, I had ever heard. They were waking up lions whose phone numbers they had, and they were the first to tell these players, Barry mm. is no longer the running back on the team, and they had Barry's dad on the air who was just a complete nut job. Right. So, I mean, it, I remember it was just one of the most amazing shows, and I punched around the other morning shows in the market, and they couldn't hold a candle to what Drew and Mike was doing. So, you know, it was a lot more than a blue show and all that stuff. It really was a smart show in in a in a, in a very riff, uh, mm-hmm. see me underbelly kind of way. <laughs> right. Um, one of the best shows that I remember that they ever did was nine eleven. Yeah. Mm. I mean, all of the stupid stuff got pushed aside, and their intelligence and their humanity really showed through. Their compassion, yeah. And they were on on nine eleven. They were on till three or three, three almost o'clock. three o'clock. Yeah. yeah. You know the, the the other part I I want to mention though is Arthur mm. because it's 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 sort of easy to not ignore him but just take for granted that he would always be there mm. in afternoons. I mean I I think the quiet brilliance of Art in, in a couple of these phases. I mean when JJ and the Morning Crew came in when it became clear that Drew and Mike was the secret sauce. Arthur let it happen. I mean, and and Arthur needed to endorse those things as sort of the kind of on-air patriarch of the station. And I think Art understood, Tom helped that along, but I think Art understood that he would be better with a great morning show as the engine of the station, mm-hmm. that, that, that if he just stepped aside and let them be that, and he could still be Art and do the rock and roll overtone and baby and all that stuff. But the fact that Art accommodated a lot of these other changes, I think, really is a tribute to his understanding of himself and his talents mm. and also what the radio station was all about. Yeah, he always said it. He didn't. He didn't. He wanted to share the glory of WRIF with the other personalities, and he didn't feel like it had to be all about him. No, he knew he was the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. he knew who he was. Yeah. but but he knew he could be bigger with a big morning show. Right. So yeah. What do you think it is about art that made the listeners um, love him so much? Art on the radio was living the life that you would want to live Mm. in a fantasy. That's so true. And it wasn't necessarily what was true about Art's life, (laughs) but what he projected. (laughs) Right. And the persona. And it was was a brilliant bad boy of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, but sure. did, did you ever go out with Art at night? Art, Art, as program director, took me out one night, and we made the rounds of Eight Mile. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Art never paid for a single drink. Um, you did. <laughs> uh, I did. Uh, but he, uh, of course I did. But, but I, I mean, you're right. I mean, it was sort of the fantasy 
But I mean, art really did live the life as well. I mean, and and I think that was part of it. There was just an exuberance about art that I think listeners picked up on. I mean, Arthur always sounded like he loved his job. And and I think on the radio, that's just such an important piece there because you got all these people in Detroit working at tough jobs mm. and on the assembly line and all that kind of stuff. And here's somebody you can turn on every day and just feel good about uh, and know that Art's listening to the music right along with mm. you. And I, I think that's a big part of what made Art so successful. So many people would say that they would uh, travel outside of Detroit, go to Florida on vacation, for example, and they'd be driving back. And they knew they were home when they heard Arthur's voice. Exactly right. Yep. You know, he just resonated the city of Detroit for sure. So the Go best ahead. the best part would be going out of town and running into riff bumper stickers oh, and T-shirts. Man. Right. After Art had um, left Riff and he moved down to Houston, I went down to visit him a couple of two times. Both times we went out to dinner, and both times somebody came up because they recognized him in, in Houston. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. just really showed. Not surprised his influence. You know, yep. really crazy. Let's talk about some of the other uh, riff promotions that have really become synonymous with this radio station. Harley Fest is going to be one of them. Uh, Fred, what do you remember about the birth? of harley fest you know that was uh really in the podell zone i mean you know that was when i was consulting the radio station and again i think that was really the podell heidi uh uh, bonding there um we, we didn't do as many events back in the early days as the radio station uh eventually ended up doing and and we started realizing that part of being a member of the riff club was being able to actually go to audience events and party with the radio station. So I think Harley Fest was, you know, to a great degree, kind of a representation of that. And Tom, Harley Fest definitely spoke to our audience at Riff, too. Absolutely. And it was was successful because it was on target for the audience. It was also successful because it was on target for the advertiser. Mm, Right. And that was... To my knowledge, I'll qualify it, that was the first time that a significant event was profitable Mm. at the same time. And the idea of marrying something that the audience enjoyed and that the advertiser profited from came together. Yeah, that's a win. Yeah, absolutely a win. And and that's really part of the whole audience delivery thing that radio stations when they're really good can do is provide a great experience for the audience and also make the advertisers happy as well. I mean, there, there aren't, there aren't a ton of situations like that. And, and Harley Fest clearly was one of those. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk about some of the other personalities that made Detroit, uh, well made riff great and Carlini, uh, coming to mind. She's been here for so long. She's so unique. Talk about Anne, and what do you, what do you think she, Brings to the table that again, the, the riff listeners love Anne. Annie, Annie is who she's talking to. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, she's uh, an older sister to some of the some of the audience, appear to others, mm-hmm. and you know, these jobs are hard to do over numerous years because you get bored. Mm-hmm. To be to be frank. And never sounds like she's mailing it in. Right. That is so true. Yeah, she always sounds and has always sounded like she loves her job and loves to play the music and loves to play it for you. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that audience connection is so important. And, you know, there's a thing in radio called voice tracking, which has become a very popular way to save money where jocks pre-record their shows and and this way instead of having live talent in there and you and and so guys like me are running around going no you've got to be live i mean that's what it's about Mm. but just having a live jock doesn't mean it's going to work having and carlini Mm. means it's absolutely going to connect i mean if it's raining outside you know Mm -hmm. if there's a big band in town you feel it i mean and absolutely delivers a live experience and there's a lot of jocks who don't particularly do a good job of that they sound the same every day right that's true 
Talk about Meltdown, Fred. I know you had a little bit something to do with uh, Meltdown being introduced to Riff. I knew him from Buffalo, and uh, I I, uh, worked for many years at 97 Rock up there, and uh, Meltdown was uh, a burgeoning personality there. So, yeah, when the opportunity uh, opened up, I think I may have uh, put Meltdown's tape on somebody's Mm -hmm. desk and said, (laughs) Doug's? Yeah, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, You ought to listen to this guy. (laughs) And uh, he's stuck pretty well, right? Well, he's stuck. It's hard to believe he's not from Detroit because he just feels like he's got a... Oh, he's from here. It's the same city. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Meltdown was, I was going to say smart enough, but it... It was more of an intuitive thing. I mean, you know, meltdowns into hockey and meltdowns into Harleys and and all that stuff. And of course, that that absolutely resonates in this market. And let's face it, Buffalo is just a junior version of Detroit. I mean, I I've been going there forever, and I'm always comfortable there because the Buffalo mindset is very similar here. And even the Ralph Wilson connection, right? You know, the uh, former owner of the Buffalo Bills was mm. here. So yeah, I mean there there there's a there's a connection there, and so for meltdown, I think it was a piece of cake coming from Buffalo to Detroit. So final thoughts when we look back on almost fifty years of WRIF, crazy, right? <laughs> it is. It's absolutely crazy. Guys, got some final thoughts on it? Wouldn't have traded a minute, mm. not a minute. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it it really has been just a great joy ride. I mean the fact that. I'm still involved, even peripherally with the radio station, is really an honor and a joy. I mean, every time I walk into this building, I kind of feel the electricity. I'm glad I don't program it anymore. I have an immense amount of respect for Mark Pennington and really all program directors now because Mm -hmm. as hard as Tom and I thought it was when we programmed, it is exponentially more difficult today. But, yeah, I'm very proud of this place and all the people who have worked here all these years and really worn the riff flag you know and it's it's just been a a great ride and and the station is as successful today Mm -hmm. as it ever was back in the 70s and the 80s which i think is incredible i mean i think about riff as being the most successful fm radio station in the history of detroit Mm -hmm. not just because of longevity but it stayed in the exact same format and it is killing it today in in the ratings and so you you think about that it's not just been a long run it's been a great run yeah fred jacobs tom bender thanks you guys appreciate you taking the time thanks mike it was great. fun it Thank was great. great appreciate it the history of wrif the podcast is brought to you by the Spex howard school of media arts